You are listening to a recording of a MedAct event, Alternative Training on Prevent in Healthcare. The training took place on the 29th of March 2021. A huge thank you to our guest speakers, Dr. Tarek Yunis, Marcelo Camus, Jordan and Amin. We hope that you enjoy the podcast. Thank you everyone for coming to the first in a series of Alternative Trainings on Prevent in Healthcare, organised by MedAct Securitisation of Health Group. So the agenda for today will be, I'll be giving a brief introduction of MEDAC's work on the prevent duty in healthcare and how it links to our other areas of work before going on to introduce speakers. We'll then be hearing from two MEDAC securitization of health group members who will be presenting the group's work on frequently asked questions about prevent. Um, we'll then hear from another group member on his experiences of trying to challenge prevent in the workplace. And finally, we'll hear from our guest speaker, who will speak on the way that race, mental health and prevent interact. We'll then aim to have 30 minutes for speakers to respond to questions asked by audience members in the Q&A box before closing. So um, for those of you, thanks Ben. Um, for those of you who are coming across MedApp for the first time today, MedAct is an organisation that works with health workers to do research and evidence-based campaigning to challenge the root causes of global and public health inequalities. We work on issues ranging from climate change, peace and security issues, economic injustice and migration. In my particular role, I support health workers to raise awareness about the health and socio-economic impacts of war, armed violence and weapons and their geopolitical root causes. So we began working on the prevent duty in health services because of a lack of, of much like popular awareness or knowledge of the duty's existence in the NHS, even among NHS staff. A few health workers had approached us with concerns about the duty and its impacts on patients and on public health in general. So we began researching the way that prevent was being implemented in the NHS and its impacts on patients and staff. And in July 2020, we published our report, False Positives, the Prevent Counter-Extremism Policy in Healthcare. Um, the findings of this report were very worrying, to say the least, um, and kind of reiterated previous research published by other places on prevent in various, you know, public sector um, areas. So um, some of those findings were, for example, depending on the region and trust in question, we found a high incidence of false positives and prevent referrals, which are characterized as referrals that didn't go on to be investigated further, um, with rates from around 58% to 98% of false positive referrals. We found Muslims were referred to prevent eight times more than non-Muslims and Asians or British Asians four times more. We also found disproportionality in people with men mental health conditions referred to prevent. And worryingly, our research also showed a lack of evidence and transparency in how the policy of prevent was formulated and its conveyor belt model of radicalization. So we'll hear more about the findings of our report in the first presentation by the members of MEDAC Securitization of Health Group. But I think what I'm interested in kind of conveying to you is that prevent is symptomatic of and contributes to wider issues both with public health and healthcare services and within society. So while many many of us here will have already been aware of this, 
the coronavirus pandemic and its effects in the UK have shed light on the deep-seated racialized health inequalities within the country, often stemming from systemic and institutionalized racism and classism. Adding to this, policies exist that lead to certain groups, again, often racialized or minoritized, being deterred from seeking healthcare, including through the practice of charging migrants for healthcare and data sharing between the NHS and Home Office. So I'm glad to see members of Docs Not Cops here with us today as well. Um, Prevent, which acts in, in a fairly similar way to this practice, also risks having a deterrent effect, thus which would exacerbate racialized health inequalities further. Significantly, however, the coronavirus pandemic and the eruption of anti-racism and Black Lives Matter protests across the UK and US last year have brought to the forefront the convergence between the two seemingly separate events. Um, we've been hearing louder and more popular calls for societal and political change that would see our understanding of security and ideas on how to truly ensure that everyone everywhere has access to safety and the protection of their well-being shift dramatically over the last couple of years. There have been calls for a move away from securitizing and criminalizing policies and institutions to holistic and evidence-based public health policies that are supportive, protective, and importantly, have collective health and well-being at its very core. So we see our work to challenge, prevent, and healthcare as a contribution to this wider movement for transformative change for all to create a fairer, safer, and better world. So with that in mind, I, I'm really excited to be able to introduce our panel of speakers this evening, who'll be going into more depth on prevent and healthcare. So first, we'll be hearing from two members of our Securitization of Health group, who'll be presenting the group's work on frequently asked questions, otherwise known as FAQs, about prevent. So we've got Jordan, who's a cultural and medical anthropologist, whose research focuses on how Islamophobia impacts health outcomes for Muslims in the UK. We'll also hear from Amin, who's a GP in East London and a member of the Securitization of Health group. Um, then we'll hear from Marcelo Camus, who will talk on his experience of trying to resist the practice of prevent in his workplace. Marcelo is a social practice artist, creating works of art that uncover social narratives while giving a space for reflection. He worked with the St. Christopher's Hospice for eight years, creating works that deal with the experiences of end of life and grieving. He's the co-founder and organizer of Social Art Network, which is a UK-wide association of creative professionals dedicated to socially engaged art. He's also the lead artist for the AHCR Fellowship Social Art for Equality, Diversity and Inclusion. And finally, we'll hear from Dr. Tarek Yunus, who will be speaking on mental health, race and prevent. And Tarek is a cultural and critical clinical psychologist and currently a lecturer in psychology at Middlesex University. So before we start, I also just wanted to acknowledge and thank those who um, work with us in the Securitization of Health group and those we've spoken to along the way as part of MEDAT's research and further afield, who've been really crucial in contributing to the process of organizing these sessions. Because of the very nature of PREVENT, there are many people within our group often those who are Muslim or in more junior or precarious roles in the workplace and or who've had direct experiences of prevent that have left a lasting mark on them and they don't not all of them feel comfortable to be able to be the face of our work 
So just for that reason, I wanted to acknowledge that they have actually contributed a lot and just highlight that Prevent does have this kind of chilling effect and we really do acknowledge that. Um, and this is just a reminder, we'll be shutting the chat box function now, but you will be able to ask questions using the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen, as I described earlier. So, um, sorry, that was a bit long, but um, I'll be handing over to Jordan and Amin now. So please do take it away, you two. Thanks so much, Amin. Um, uh, I actually just wanted to start by saying, I'm so pleased to see so many people joining us uh, this evening. Um, and also if there are any of you from Prevent or who feel inclined to report any of us to Prevent, then uh, Reem's the ringleader. She made us do this and uh, she's the one to go for. <laughs> but no, as, 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 as Reem mentioned, there's a lot of us that have, uh, that have, uh, that have, have worked on this, uh, including of course, Marcelo, Tarek, Jordan, and Reem and, and others that aren't, aren't, so many others that aren't with us. And, and I think it's important to honor, on, honor them by, by, by mentioning them, um, um, if not in name, at least in, in spirit. Um, and I guess moving on from that, on a more serious note, um, I, I practiced this presentation with Jordan um, a few days ago, and there was something for me that was missing. Um, so this wasn't planned, but yesterday I decided I needed to say something a bit more personal. Um, so I, I asked Jordan and she, she kindly uh, uh, gave me permission to do so, not knowing what it was, would be that I would say. <laughs> but um, I'm going to go for that now. And I'm going to start with, with a quote. And this is from Aurora Levins Morales. And they said, the only way to bear the overwhelming pain of oppression is by telling in all its detail, in the presence of witnesses, and in a context of resistance, how unbearable it is. If we attempt to craft resistance without understanding this task, we are collectively vulnerable to all the errors of judgment that unresolved trauma generates in individuals. It's part of our task as revolutionary people, people who want deep-rooted radical change, to be as whole as it is possible for us to be. This can only be done if we face the reality of what oppression really means in our lives, not as abstract systems subject to analysis, but as an avalanche of traumas leaving a wake of devastation in the lives of real people who nevertheless remain human, unquenchable, complex, and full of possibility. And it's on reflecting on that, that I decided I need to be as whole as possible myself in this. And I wanted to introduce here uh, three reflections, really, personal reflections based on my experiences of engaging in this work. Um, and also a couple of principles involved in this that I've taken from uh, Healing Justice London, another organization I work with. So the first point is on socialization. So, Outside of a culture of racism and Islamophobia, Prevent could not exist. It's politically motivated and it's fueled by a suspicion of Muslims. And knowing this helps me to understand how healthcare workers can hold values of non-maleficence, equality and confidentiality, yet not recognize that Prevent is masquerading as safeguarding 
are Muslims any less deserving of safety and dignity? We need to get better at holding complexity in multiple realities. Practice using and instead of but. Yes, far-right extremists are referred to prevent, and it is Islamophobic. The threat of terrorism is real, and prevent needs to end. The second point I wish to make is on discomfort. At Healing Justice London, we, we often say comfort and transformation do not live in the same house. So the actual work of social justice, anti-racism and anti-oppression has involved a great deal of personal discomfort for me. I believe that symbolism, putting up a banner, taking a knee for a photo op, saying the right things, although well-meaning, serve the function of appeasing one's conscience whilst leaving the uncomfortable truths under the rug. It's a bit like carbon offsetting. So in what you're doing to help feels easy, please ask yourself whether you're really challenging the status quo. And finally, a point on allyship. Allyship implies a separation between us and them and a choice of whether to take up the cause of the other. But if we care about social justice, then the plight of the oppressed is as much our cause as it is theirs, if not more so. I've been repeatedly told in this work with MedAct on Prevent, what can't be done by allies, individuals, institutions, organizations. This conveniently leaves the burden of figuring out what can be done, and there's lots, to the oppressed. And with that in mind, what can be done, I think let's move on to the presentation itself. And what I would say with regards to the presentation is, it's pretty short, it's about seven minutes. Um, you don't need to make notes. The content of the presentation is available online through MedAx website. Um, and it's based entirely on MedAx report that we mentioned earlier. So if you want the details for the facts that are present in this, in this presentation, then please refer to MedAx report um, false positives. Okay. Next. So firstly, what is PREVENT? PREVENT's part of the government's counter-terrorism strategy with a stated aim of identifying vulnerability to radicalization. In 2015, the government extended the PREVENT duty to healthcare and education under the guise of safeguarding, making the UK the only country in the world where healthcare bodies are legally obliged to respond to, quote, the ideological challenge of terrorism. Healthcare workers are now expected to make a speculative assessment, stress on speculative, which involves trusting one's instinct. No one referred to prevent has committed a crime. They've simply been suspected of susceptibility to radicalization. So you might be wondering, what is the evidence for prevent? Despite costing at least 40 million pounds a year to implement, PREVENT has no credible evidence base and has never been independently evaluated. Its assessment criteria were based on a single psychological study. And this paper was originally classified and not published in a peer-reviewed journal until 2015. The underlying data set has actually never been published. The Royal College of Psychiatrists asserts 
that public policy cannot be based on a lack of transparency about evidence and calls for it to be comprehensively published and readily accessible. So does prevent pose professional conflicts. There needs to be a concrete risk of death or serious harm in order to justify breaching confidentiality in the public interest, we know this. If, as the Home Office insists, prevent is voluntary and supportive program, the only route to referral should be through patient consent with respect for autonomy. However, prevent blurs the distinction between safeguarding and public protection, and this is a really key point, and involves unconscious bias. This, together with state and institutional pressure to comply, means that many, if not most, referrals are made on the basis of very little evidence and without seeking patient consent. The inappropriate breaching of confidentiality erodes trust, compromises the therapeutic practitioner-patient relationship and discourages health-seeking behavior, particularly in your already minoritized communities. And it also puts practitioners squarely in breach of their professional obligations, GMC guidance, and ironically, the law. So does PREVENT cause harm to people? The government insists that PREVENT deals with all forms of terrorism and does not focus on any one community. However, home office leaked documents from 2019 describe PREVENT audiences as British Muslims, particularly males aged 15 to 39. Although PREVENT did not publish complete ethnicity and faith data, Evidence from human rights organizations demonstrates that already marginalized black and minority ethnic communities are disproportionately referred. This risks worsening health inequalities and is institutionally racist. There is also evidence that a prevent referral can exacerbate or even lead to physical and mental health problems. So we see it working on multiple levels there. Does prevent keep us safe? So the UN Special Rapporteur on Racism, Xenophobia and Other Forms of Racism, Ms. Achume and others state that there's no causal link between prevent and any change of the level of terrorism or extremism in the UK. In 2018, following a visit to the UK, Ms. Achume called on the government to, at the very least, suspend the prevent duty and implement a comprehensive audit of its impact on racial equality and on the political, social and economic exclusion of racial and ethnic minorities, especially within Muslim communities. So in summary, London Pigeon says, PREVENT has no cre credible evidence base, has never been independently evaluated, and there's a concerning lack of transparency, trans transparency surrounding it. An inappropriate breaching of confidentiality risks eroding trust, harming the therapeutic patient practitioner relationship and discouraging health seeking behavior. Prevent disproportionately targets Muslims. The evidence shows that as a policy, it is racist, exacerbates health inequalities and is a source of physical and psychological harm for marginalized people. There's no causal link between prevent and the level of terrorism or violent extremism in the UK. Are you an expert on the UK, uh, is called on the UK to suspend prevent while a comprehensive audit of its impacts is conducted. We believe that we need to collectively create a society 
in which the sense of safety, dignity, and belonging of all people is protected. You can learn more about the contents of the presentation by reading MEDAC's report, False Positives. This is the report that Reem spoke about at the beginning of the presentation. And it is full of data and it will uh, refer you back to a lot of what you have heard um, with substance, substantive data. Uh, this includes recommendations to government, independent reviewers, health bodies, including royal colleges and researchers. And you'll be able to access this report if you search medec.org slash prevent report. So now you might be wondering how can we oppose prevent? Uh, MEDAC has three things for us to keep in mind that we would call for. The first is we call for the repeal of prevent. The second is we call for the adoption of evidence-based public health policies. And third, for the redressal of harms caused by prevent. It's important that we realize we must come together collectively in order to address these three things. Um, you can support our work if that is something that really speaks to you and seems of interest to you by becoming a member of MEDACT and by joining our Securitization of Health subgroup. Um, and you can learn more by signing up for our mailing list. Great, thank you so much, both of you. Um, I think that was, yeah, just very um, comprehensive and yeah, just, yeah, thank you loads. I think it was really clear and hopefully people will have learned a lot and you will be able to find at the end, we'll be posting a kind of link to a document where you can find all of the links to stuff that's been mentioned, such as the report and the FAQs that are now available on our website as of today. Um, so yeah, you'll just watch out for that in the chat box later, or if you're going to have to go before then, maybe just look on our website and you'll be able to see it, or I will send it, all these resources out to you by email. So now we'll be moving on to hear from Marcelo about his experience of trying to challenge or resist the practice of prevent when he was working at a hospice. Um, so yeah, please do take it away, Marcelo. Thank you. Um, thanks, Amin Jordan, for presenting that. Um, my name is Marcelo, and um, I'm going to uh, begin just by um, contextualizing who I am. I'm a Latin American artist. I'm a naturalized British citizen. I work in social practice art, which means visual arts dedicated to working with communities and social justice. And as a child, um, I lived under the dictatorship of Pinochet in Chile. And as an adult, I watched the Twin Towers collapse from the roof of my apartment block. And I mention that because these experiences inform how I define my politics and why I'm here presenting to you today. I worked with St. Christopher's Hospice um, on and off since about 2008. And I've seen so many changes of senior and executive management, new buildings and extensions, redesigning of services around what um, was considered um, the best way to approach end of life at the hospice. Central to this was an arts team that I was part of, uh, and it had grown to become one of the largest um, arts at end of life uh, in, of any hospice in the world, which was really fantastic. Um, and one of the effects 
which contextualize how Prevent was rolled out there is what has happened to charities across the UK over the last um, 13 years of austerity. And I just want to kind of take that to sink in because it is a really important aspect of how um, the politics that we live in are affecting economic conditions and thus the ability to roll out things like prevent. And this has meant that charity organizations like the hospice are um, forced to rebrand themselves following what they consider to be their corporate guidelines and visions to create um, a better uh, turnaround of income. And that I have seen directly cause um, a lack of community in the workplace. And I know that this is happening in many different institutions. So many of you might relate to this. So a kind of more nurturing nature of work is replaced with a really quick turnaround of services. And that speed of service meant that um, the psychosocial practice of art making at the end of life was beginning to get sidelined. So hiring freezes, job cuts, what I reckon was a lack of leadership, um, brought a staff of eight arts team, which included um, art therapists, music therapists, community artists, as well as four students on placement down to um, three staff members. And it was in what I consider to be this really difficult battleground in which the prevent duty was rolled out. Now it was rolled out um, without any announcement. It was just one more of the growing mandatory trainings that were added to the staff workload. Staff, like you know, at most of the organizations you work with are over capacity. So they just go through the, the, these trainings without thinking about them because there's so much to do. This is also part of the problem. Now, outside of my work at the hospice, um, I also helped develop something called the Social Art Network. It's an alliance, a mutual aid group of artists and organizations across the country dedicated to socially engaged practice. And because of my work there, um, I, had, I was familiar with Prevent. I had uh, read articles about it. I had seen work developed around it. Um, I had seen challenges around it, particularly in education. So when Prevent was rolled out at the hospice, um, I avoided it. I didn't do it and I let it chase me until it caught up with me. Uh, when it did catch up with me, I used the, um, my uh, research skills and to collect lots of information that I thought um, could make the case about why it was problematic. And I presented this to an interim line manager that was there at the time. Somebody who was in, had never managed uh, teams before. I will also say that I was part of the Equality and Diversity Committee at the hospice, something that I had been doing on my own as a practitioner was trying to develop uh, more diversity initiatives at the hospice because generally there were some um, strong issues of unconscious bias mm -hmm. at the workplace. Um, it was very difficult to bring this up at the END group, and that's partially because the equality and diversity group at the hospice was um, included and often the loudest voices at them were senior management. That made it very difficult for uh, employees who might be more directly affected by uh, 
issues such as prevent to speak up, especially people from um, uh, multiple mixed ethnicities. So we had a meeting of the EMD group with um, just staff of mixed heritage uh, that felt that they could open, openly speak more freely. And that was really important to kind of create that safe space. We had to do that, imagine, behind the back of the actual E&D group. And at that meeting, when we talked about PREVENT, um, it was brought up that uh, not only had previous staff dropped out of the E&D group for not being able to address or acknowledge issues around race and ethnicity, but also the staff were not comfortable bringing this up. So as a Latin American um, with uh, the education that I have, with the skin tone that I have, with the experience that I have, I was exercising my privilege to be able to bring this conversation to senior management. And I absolutely think it's important to declare that here because um, I mentioned that to staff that did not feel that they had that privilege, but were comfortable to um, back my statements. So I went to senior management and I um, said that I would not do the prevent training and I outlined the reasons for it. I uh, collected research articles about it. I did not come empty handed. <laughs> I did not just say, hey, I don't wanna do this. I don't agree with it. I really did my work around why. Um, and I was met with what I term here a real misuse of language because the prevent duty was, quote, a training requirement from the CCG. It was mandatory for all staff. And furthermore, if I didn't do the training, it would end in, quote, disciplinary measures. And this is all I was wet, met with constantly. I was never engaged in a true, honest conversation about prevent. I found this incredibly difficult. And this is not the first time I had seen or heard of this happening. I'm gonna offer you the example of Amsprache, which is the language that denies choice or responsibility. If you haven't heard of that before, I welcome you to search the Nuremberg plea because that's what was used. Office talk, and it's a way of dehumanizing the actual experience of what is happening. So when we say this is just a training requirement and it's mandatory and this and that, you're not actually engaging with the real problem. Very difficult conversations with senior management. Um, I'm sure as you do in your own workplace, you don't want to rock the boat. It's very difficult. You don't want to be thought of as the problem person. I am somebody that is often a mediator and tries to get along with everybody. So that was a very difficult position to take. It put me incredibly at odds with senior management. It made me incredibly uncomfortable and they managed it incredibly poorly, in my opinion. I was put, um, put in touch with the Prevent Regional Coordinator for NHS England, in which I sent a really polite and extensive email. I attached the articles. I highlighted text in the articles to show why the prevent duty at a hospice was problematic, why I did not want to oblige to enact the duty. I did not agree 
that the prevent duty worked as part of the total care package at the end of life. I received no answer. Um, the regional coordinator replied to my manager who then forwarded it to me, thus ignoring the conversation with me directly and just said that it wasn't the role of the NHS to respond to criticisms, that it was a, again, quote, legal and contractual requirement and that there'd be no more further dialogue about this matter. So where, as a concerned staff member, do you take these issues? I did speak to a lawyer and I did learn something that you'd be really interested in that my personal beliefs are protected under the Equality Act. The lawyer had taken a case on and the organization had eventually settled, but each case is different. There was no um, assurances that this would happen. This was all an incredible amount of stress over months while I was still denying to do the training. The deadline to do the training was coming. Disciplinary measures were being um, threatened to me and I did not find that I had really long-term much choices. There was also a lot of political changes happening in the country that in my opinion were for the worse. And under all of this stress, I decided to do the training while also reporting on it. I did do the training. I collected evidence of all the training questions. Um, I screenshot it all, I collected it and I saved it. I did send a message back to the um, NHS England reg prevent regional coordinator. And it's something that I shared in an article that was also written that you're welcome you to um, read. It's, it's up on the uh, Securitization of Health um, site as well. And I closed with these words. My work with patients at St. Christopher's Hospice has been a powerful testament to the importance of our shared humanity when faced with death and dying. With this in mind, I hope that as an institution, we can be more mindful of the negative impacts of the influence of politics and especially policies such as prevent and mindful of the ways in which we can engage in these issues more holistically more compassionately and more effectively. In some ways, I lost my cause at the workplace. I strained working relationships in an effort to see what I believed as a championing of social justice, anti-racism and actual compassionate care. But what I did find was that there were many people across the country that were in a similar position. At the time, I felt very alone. Actually, I realized, and this training is a manifestation of what happens when people come together, 
and show that there is power in numbers, no matter how small. And I think given the big changes that we've been seeing, the real resurgence of a civil rights movement, I believe that we're on the right side of history. That's my story. I hope it is in some way informative and inspiring to help you think about your position in your workplace. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much, Marcelo. Um, yeah, it's really difficult to speak on personal experiences like that and to come up against policies that you just fundamentally disagree with on principle in the workplace. So yeah, I just really appreciate you sharing kind of your experience and also your thoughts on it um, and those feelings of like isolation. Um, so yeah, just thank you so much. Um, and just a reminder that, yeah, I invite you to ask questions in the Q&A box at the bottom of the screen. Um, please do feel free. And as I said before at the beginning, you can also ask those questions anonymously through ticking the box that says send anonymously. Um, so finally, we'll be hearing today from Dr. Tarek Yunus before opening up the floor for questions through the Q&A box function. Um, and like I said, just if you could just make sure that these are questions and not comments, I'd really appreciate it. So yeah, just um, please go ahead, Tarek. Great, thank you so much, Reem. Um, really everyone at MedAct, Ben, who's, uh, who'll be in control of the, the presentation, um, Jordan and Amin for doing the hard part of actually introducing prevent, which I think is always actually the most difficult part in any presentation on prevent is really sort of summarizing it. And, and Marcelo also for, for his courage um, and for sharing his story. I really appreciate everyone. Um, so my name is Tariq Yunus and um, I uh, will be presenting. I actually, so I present quite often on prevent and I think today, especially I will be changing my way of presenting on prevent or at least talking about prevent because I generally maybe talk more about my research and sort of elaborate on it. I think in this presentation, I'm sort of going to halfway present some of my research on sort of the intersection between race and mental health um, and prevent and also sort of pandering a little bit to the, to the imagination of the sort of issues around prevent. And here, I think one of the things I also, I just wanna start off for anyone listening um, who at all feels anxious or suffocated by prevent um, or any sort of uh, racist policy that they feel they're experiencing in healthcare and otherwise. I just want you to know that we see you and we hear you. I think this is something that something sometimes is just not often acknowledged enough. For anyone who does feel suffocated to prevent, you're not alone. Um, and really what we wanna do today is sort of open that up. So um, I also wanna mention coincidentally, uh, this is actually the second uh, event that I was a part of today on, um, on CVE policy. So prevent is a countering violent, violent extremism policy. There was one earlier today, a very big one that looked at CVE policies across Europe. And it's 
called Suspicion, Discrimination and Surveillance. And that's a really, really big report that I hope to maybe just touch upon as well. Um, you can go to the next slide, please. So I thought today what I would do is start off with some examples very quickly, um, just to sort of illustrate this sort of intersection between race and mental health and prevent. Um, the first case is uh, a Muslim woman, a racialized Muslim woman. So when I say racialized, I mean she she exhibits a Muslimness, and in this case, she wears a niqab, which means her face is covered except for her eyes. She went to see a mental health professional here in the UK, um, and uh, for trauma. And during the course of the the first session, the mental health professional at the end he sort of smiled and told her, one of the signs of successful treatment will be her ability to take off her headscarf. And immediately then there, she was incredibly worried about a prevent referral. Um, that's one case. The second case has to do with a BM. These are all original cases that came from my research, by the way. I had about two dozen cases um, that and many of them that I can't publish just simply because the, their stories are too revealing. Uh, one is a BME staff member racialized Muslim. He got a phone call um, from what I believe was a mental health professional seeing a patient. The patient started wearing a kufi, which is this, um, this garb that you put on your head. He called um, the, the staff member as a chaplain. So it's a Muslim chaplain. So the mental health professional called the Muslim chaplain and said, hey, this guy, this one of my, one of my patients um, put on a kufi. Um, I'm wondering if that's a sign of radicalization to which the chaplain responded, I'm wearing a kufi. Um, another case example has to do with uh, a white, racialized, a racialized white GP woman who uh, uh, was seeing a, a patient. A patient came in wearing very long sort of garb, long beard, and um, they had a good rapport. So he randomly just started talking about the fact that he was considering homeschooling his children. Obviously, in today's day and age, that's uh, that that was that's probably far more the norm than the exception. Um, but the moment he said that, she immediately thought, "Oh, is this worthy of a prevent referral?" Um, to which she stopped asking any questions. She didn't want to talk about it anymore. She just sort of changed the subject. Um, there, there is a case of uh, racialized minority uh, psychiatrist. Um, she told me about a very powerful case actually of there was um, a racialized white adolescent girl who uh, was being severely uh, abused at home. So she was experiencing severe domestic abuse. She had eventually at one point converted to Islam, which raised suspicions in the mental health team. But then when she put on the headscarf, the team started prioritizing her, the potential that she is becoming radicalized and actually her domestic abuse became secondary to the actual, uh, to, to the actual case. And finally, um, there is a racialized Muslim psychiatrist who told me about the case of a white man who's going around beating homeless people on the street um, in the spirit of uh, that homeless people, you know, to sort of, he wants to sort of eradicate them. He wants to just get them off the street. And the, the psychiatrist, he understood the logic behind that. It belongs to sort of this neoliberal 
logic of sort of the 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 you know creating the conditions for the invisibility of 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 homelessness you know what we see is this violent architecture increasing across cities um and he thought oh this requires some ideological reprogramming he made the referral um the the prevent safeguarding lead came back and said no those aren't the type uh that's not the type of people we're looking for um so what's interesting in all these cases and there's a lot to unpack here there's some overlapping themes which i'm just going to draw on one thing that's very significant to me is just the nature of the impact of prevent in the intersubjective space when it comes to the space between healthcare professional and the patient you see the nuances that's coming out of these cases they can't be quantified it's very difficult to grasp you think about the white female white female gp i mean she immediately just stopped a line of questioning that doesn't go into the statistics of prevent she never made a prevent referral but the very fact that the prevent duty exists had immediately penetrated the intersubjective space and it was a highly racialized interaction right so if you think about the fact that had she seen a racialized white middle class woman and a racialized white middle class woman is is just thinking about oh i'm thinking about homeschooling my children right that would never even operate into the into the register prevent it had to be a racialized muslim man with a long garb and a long beard because it's only through those signifiers does it enter into the into the sort of the public consciousness of the fact that is this muslim man does he not want his children to integrate into british society you see that this is this is where racial the racialization of social conflicts is really important to sort of understand how racialization operates and the nuance the impact it has the minutia of it can never ever be fully uh, understood and actually one of the greatest violences that the government is doing in terms of trying to um uh present itself that the prevent is not racist is by simply just looking at the prevent referral numbers but here everything i've been drawing upon right now all of this was a pre pre prevent referral um so i'm going to now um next slide please uh, I just want to mention very quickly because I'm going to be talking about racism, and I think sometimes we just assume we all understand what racism is. Uh, but I thought it'd be good to very quickly introduce uh, what I mean by by racism and why that's important in discussions of prevent. So often when we hear about racism, I think what's understood is this sort of illiberal racism. We're thinking about neo Nazis. We're thinking about KKK. We're thinking about these holistic sort of demonization of entire groups. Whereas liberal racism today, we're seeing it operates on registers of particular um, ideologies and social conflicts. So if we think about, um, you know, if you think about uh, in terms of just racialized capitalism or just capitalism, you know, it's not a whole xenophobia is never usually just a wholesale demonization of all migrants. It creates a register that the good migrants are those that are productive to our nation and the bad migrants. Are those that are not productive to our nation, right? Those sort of liberal registers create these divides between good and bad, good migrants, bad migrants, uh, bad migrants, you know, good Muslims, bad Muslims, etc. Um, which speaks to this fact that it no longer operates upon very sort of overtly racist criteria, right? So it's not this illiberal racism, but you know, it hides behind these other registers. 
um, to which colorblindness is really important. And here I'm just gonna present two very quick examples, how prevent and the government actually recognize um, how race is actually very significant in prevent and what it actually tries to do um, to address it, um, which will also bring us back to mental health. Um, so next slide, please. Um, so I'm just gonna go ahead to the next slide. The only thing here that I'm going to actually, I'm just mention very quickly, What's important is we're talking about racialization. Um, and I think there's a very important point to be said here because often the sort of very um, very common response is, well, Islam, Muslims aren't a group, Islam is not a group. What we're saying is that Muslims are racialized according to social conflicts like the war on drugs. Um, similarly to the war on terror, if you were to just tell police officers, go out and try to capture people you assume might be uh, you know, involved with drugs. Then these police officers are going to go stop and search individuals um, who are more likely to be racialized as black because the idea of criminality is racialized to blackness as well as is very well documented in the British public consciousness and public consciousness across the, the Western world. The threat of terrorism, the very construction of terrorism in the public consciousness is racialized to Muslims. Um, so next slide, please. So one way um, the prevent tries to deal with this is that it erases, it, go, it, it engages in this form of colorblindness. And I call it performative colorblindness, whereby it's sort of recognizing and trying to erase that association or at least erase its own accountability for the association between Muslims and, and terrorism. And in this one training slide, which was sent to me by a racialized Muslim psychiatrist, who is very upset, it says, what factors might make a child vulnerable to radicalization? You have four factors. The pre um, the, uh, sorry, deprivation, I can't read my own slide. Bullying, attending the local mosque, adolescence. And the whole point in the slide is that you're not supposed to check attending the local mosque, right? But in doing so, what is the slide doing? It's sort of raising the significance of a racialized signifier, which is associated with Muslims here and erasing it. Is it local mosque? No, it's not the local mosque. Is it the headscarf? No, it's not the headscarf. So it's recognizing that the public consciousness immediately associates terrorism um, with Muslimness. And there's a point here of accountability that's really significant in this slide, because even if you were to click attending the local mosque and believe it, you can still go through to the end of training uh, and get your certificate for prevent. Um, next slide, please. And what I've been writing about much more, um, and if anyone's interested in reading much more about this, you can just, uh, I can share some articles on this uh, that I've been writing. So the, the rhetoric of psychology, the psychology talk, right? The language of vulnerability um, is well known uh, to, to, to abstract racism. And by that, it sort of diminishes the significance that racialized association between Muslimness and terrorism because it speaks within the sort of universalized positivist attitude that we're, we all, by everyone watching this, through our shared psychological vulnerabilities, we can all equally be susceptible to radicalization. That's the sort of language behind the training, what you see here, what's behind those behaviors. Talk about family upheaval, if I have family upheaval, if Reem has family upheaval, we're all equally susceptible to radicalization through psychologization of, uh, of, of, of social conflicts. Uh, next slide, please. 
So to this, um, there's a number of things that are quite significant. And I think maybe I'll just end on this slide and hopefully I would have touched on uh, a number of things that we can at least maybe talk about in the Q&A. There's a number of ways in which racism is still increasingly deflected and in fact is increasingly more so deflected in today's nationalist political climate than it was before. But one is this point that, oh, there's an increased interest in the far right. We can increase the war on terror towards the far right or the counterterrorism apparatus towards them, you know, after Capitol Hill, et cetera. Um, it's really important to emphasize that just because white people can get caught in prevent or that they can get referred through counterterrorism, that does not make a policy not racist. That's really, really important to understand. Same, similar in the war on drugs, just because they can catch a white drug dealer doesn't make the policy not racist. It just means that their bodies alone, there, there was no racialized signifiers alone embodied in them that was sufficient to bring it to that level. They most likely exhibited a sort of behavior, a sort of, um, a sort of speech that associated them with a far right group. But that's what we're talking about racialization is that Muslims can very easily just be referred for, um, for their perceived Muslimness. And another way that right now mental health is becoming very central is that in this is that the largest category of people being referred to prevent in the, in the latest statistics is 38%. It's mixed, unknown, unclear ideology. And this is so, so significant for all of us moving forward because now we're seeing a securitization of the entire psychologized space. Now people who might act strange, but exhibit no or make no reference to ideology whatsoever can, are being referred for the potential that they may become terrorists in the future. And that is a highly, highly racialized practice. Um, and of course, um, there's the wider impact. One thing I just wanna mention, cause I know I have uh, probably less than 30 seconds left. Um, there's, I'm going to just fly, I'm going to check, I'm going to check box two points. One is the element of coercion, which I hope I can talk about maybe later. And the other is that one thing that prevent can't do in fact, which is very, very interesting, but we don't mention enough. If I'm talking about Islamophobia, prevent by its, by its very work can't recognize that it's Islamophobic because one of the things that we know in research is that political marginalization actually leads to political violence. Right, so if, if people are being marginalized, that might lead to political violence. So in effect, if Prevent were to recognize this, it would be admitting that it might be contributing to the very thing it seeks to, uh, to, to prevent. And I think I'll bring in the, the lived reality of the mother um, at a different instance. I apologize for speaking so quickly and I'm sorry Reem, for going over time. Amazing. Thank you, Tarek. No, that was great. <laughs> I'm sorry that I have to be the timekeeper and cut people off. I hate that job, but there you go. <laughs> um, so thank you so much, Tarek. And thanks also to um, the other speakers today. Um, I hope that you, all of you in the audience found it really um, interesting and at least raised questions for you about Prevent and also answered some questions because that is why we're here today. We wanted to answer questions that you weren't having answered in kind of the official prevent trainings. 
Um, I think there was a bit of confusion by some people around, you know, was this just another official prevent training? <laughs> but I'm sure if if you're here today, you've realized this isn't an official prevent training at all. Um, this is which is why we've called it an alternative training on prevent. Um, so, yeah, uh, we've got some questions in the in the Q&A box. Um, so just to invite you again to put in questions in the Q&A box, which you can find at the bottom of your screen. Um, and I will just start off with a round of three questions that I'll put to all of you. And in particular, Tarek and Marcelo, I, I really invite you to respond to the questions. Um, and I'll respond and Amin and Jordan, I invite you also to respond where you, you would like to. Um, so just I'll, I'll read out the first three and then, um, yeah, please do just say if you would like to um, answer. So uh, the first question is asked anonymously um, of whether there are examples of prevent impacting on discrimination against healthcare staff. Um, and if any one of you wants to respond in particular, please do. I'll just say from, from our doing our research so when we published when we were doing the research on for the false positives report we conducted focus groups with health workers across the country um, and we did interviews with with many health workers and more generally people working in health like in the broader field of health and we definitely did come across like repeatedly um anecdotal evidence of discrimination in the way that prevent was being implemented but also in the way that healthcare staff who were raising concerns about prevent were dealt with by senior management um so i uh, we don't have any kind of qualitative data to back that up we only have anecdotal data which is often i think um something that's used by like various officials to say well you don't have the you don't have the research, you don't have the evidence because we don't, it's not really possible to, to get that kind of evidence. But yeah, I just thought, um, I don't know, Tarek or Amin or Marcelo or Jordan, do you want to come back on that? Or actually, let me just read out the other two questions. I said I'd do that. Um, so then another question that was asked was, uh, again, anonymously, um, specifically to Marcelo, did you find that other colleagues wanted to do the same as you, but were too scared? Um, and then we have a question from John Hutchins saying, I'm familiar with the false positives report and also with the claims that prevent make about mental health disorders and susceptibility to radicalization. My question is whether MEDAPT has additional evidence to the, the cases that were included in its 10 case studies. So um, the three case studies um, included in them of a causal relationship between prevent referral and mental health precipitation. So just want to invite you all to come in on that, um, on any of those questions. Is there anyone in particular who wants to start off? Just unmute yourself. I'm quite happy to uh, answer the question about um, other colleagues, because uh, I think that it's um, it is important uh, to, to know that there were definitely other colony, other col um, colleagues who felt that they, um, that felt uncomfortable bringing up the topic in the workplace um, and that they 
could not challenge it. Definitely. Um, uh, one of the things that I spoke about with senior management when I talked about the issues with prevent was precisely this. I went as a representative that was able to voice or, or um, feel that they had the um, right or ability to sit at the table and, and, and voice dissent and that there were other colleagues that could not. Um, I was told by senior management that they were uh, very surprised that um, black and brown employees at the workplace would not feel comfortable challenging uh, some of the safeguarding that was put in place. I'm quoting here. Um, of course, we know that that's true. We know that that happens in every organization. We know that that's part of um, um, what has been developed as, as the power structures. Uh, and um, what is interesting is being able to identify who that is and have those honest conversations um, and build solidarity around that. Uh, because when I brought it up, other people felt comfortable to say it. Nobody had said it until then. So I think being able to vocalize is really difficult, but is really important because definitely um, I found that there were other um, employees in that same position. Thank you, Marcelo. Um, anyone else want to come in on any of the three questions that were asked? Just unmute. I, I can briefly speak to the first question about staff referrals, right? I think that was the question. Um, so I can just mention two things very quickly. Um, one, uh, it seems it seems in terms of just ter in terms of ratios uh, between, let's say, if we're talking about students, teachers in education and patient staff in the NHS, there seems to be a higher ratio of of NHS staff referrals. This is very, very anecdotal. Um, and this is just looking through different data sets. Um, so you can't quote me really on this. Um, but it's, it's really interesting because when I did my research, I got to know about four or five cases of, of staff referrals. Um, some of them I'm, I'm not at liberty of sharing. They're, they're actually really quite overtly racist, really bad. Um, but you know, one I did write about in a paper, this was not overtly a prevent referral, but one was the case of a female racialized Muslim psychiatrist who, um, not, she didn't even speak out against prevent. She just raised her hand during prevent training, um, asked why we're getting prevent training if the Royal College of Psychiatrists themselves have issued a report against it. Uh, to which the trainer made a complaint against her. And that complaint went all the way up the ladder. There was uh, someone who was um, then employed to come investigate the whole situation. Very, very awkward and very suffocating, a very hyper-racialized um, circumstance to which everyone else also recognized it. So everyone recognized because she wasn't the only one to speak out against prevent or to raise her hand against it. She was the only one to whom a complaint was made. Um, I know of another case of a staff member to which I can't go into many more details, 
but apparently I think he made um, perhaps a racist comment, um, which was re referred to prevent. So there's definitely there's definitely a very uh, again um, that that was a racialized Muslim. Um, so there's the cases of referrals, but also one of the things I've written about is the sort of racialized self censorship of of Muslim staff in prevent training. And it's not only them, I think there's a moralizing element to prevent, you know, no one wants to speak out against counterterrorism. That, that's the whole point of, you know, what Bush said, you're either with us or against us, it's very moralizing. But it was, it was incredibly, it was a very racial, the whole prevent training itself is very racialized to the point that many, many staff until today, I'm still getting people coming to me and telling me I went through prevent training and it was very, very difficult. You know, I kept my mouth shut though, because, I can't really speak out against it for what that might entail. Thank you, Tarek. Um, I'll just quickly respond to John Hutchins' question around the um, prevent uh, around um, our re our report. So the question was whether Medat had additional evidence um, to the case studies that we included in the report <clears throat> in the report on um whether there is a causal relationship between prevent referral and mental health precipitation um so just to kind of clarify for the other attendees essentially that in a few of the case studies that we present in our um report uh there yeah essentially there were people who were reported some with prior mental health conditions diagnosed mental health conditions and who were receiving treatment for those conditions um, or for other um, other health conditions, who either um, uh, it disrupted a uh, prevent referral disrupted their treatment, so they um, kind of disengaged with treatment because of the impact of the prevent referral, or in some cases, um, or in a, in maybe one or two cases, we found that even in people without prior diagnosis of mental health condition. Um, they developed anxiety disorders or other kind of mental health conditions, um, and as did family members of those who were referred because of the impacts of the referral and the anxiety that it created and the stress that it created. Um, so we didn't, so we don't have further, like, further anecdotal or kind of quantitative evidence of that. Um, just because it would be, I think, really difficult to collect that kind of research. And I, I think Tarek probably um, is able to speak to that kind of difficulty of like being able to quantify um, harm. Um, and particularly when you're talking about quantifying a deterrent effect. I know that my our friends in Docs Not Cops have also found this, that it's so difficult to be able to quantify how many people are not accessing the care they need because of a policy that's in place by the very nature of what deterrence is. Those people aren't engaging um, and thus, you know, the impacts of that non-engagement are, are, you know, taking place um, without knowledge of it. Um, so yeah, the, I guess that's just a long way of saying, no, we don't have further evidence of, of that kind of um, link between a referral and, um, yeah, men mental health conditions. I, I hope that answers that question. Um, did anyone want to respond to any of the further questions or shall I go to the 
um, to the second round. Okay, I'll go to the second round. Um, so I just thought I would kind of group this round because there were quite a few questions in the Q&A box that kind of related in some way to resistance to prevent in the workplace. So Roya asked, as a visibly Muslim person, how do I go about sharing the learning from this without raising suspicions and concerns in the workplace? Kitty from Docs Not Cops asked, says, we come across the same rebuttal from NHS Trust with regard to charging. Um, and they say it's not our individual trust policy and we're duty bound to implement it and then refuse to engage in further conversations. So a lot of what Marcelo, you were saying. Um, and so the strategies that they've been using to challenge this haven't yet shifted any trust's positions. And so she just asks whether there are any thoughts on the tactics or the tactic of pressuring trusts directly. Um, Anna asked, is there a way to opt out from the training? Um, she says that she's been reported to a head teacher from a colleague just for making comments against prevent in the staff room where no one from leadership was there. And then Amanda in a similar vein asked, how can we effectively oppose slipping prevent into safeguarding at work? Um, yeah, I think those, like those were all kind of, I grouped those all as general like resistance, opposition to prevent in like those kind of healthcare and I guess educational settings. Um, I wonder if, yeah, does anyone have any responses to that? I do, but I would like to hear from you first, if possible. Go on, I mean. Just a general point of, uh, if you are interested, I mean, it's great to hear that people are interested in, in uh, opposition. I would say um, one thing you could do is, is join our securitization of, of healthcare group um, because we're relatively new um, and we're thinking around these things. And th this training is, is our, one of our first big outputs, um, but we'd love to hear and have you know other other people's support and ideas uh, to help us you know steer us in, in terms of our direction so please yeah, consider consider joining the group i think that there's also um you know we we also we are we are not different from you as somebody coming into this um space of learning and sharing uh and and when we're all in this together so so Although we might seem as experts in the room at this point, actually we are just colleagues. With that said, um, there's different philosophies on how this should happen. Um, and I think that uh, in, it, some of it is about the kind and gentle education of the other to kind of bring them over to understand the challenges here. Some of it is about um, um, the, the realization that this is problematic and a more, um, what's the right word to use? A more um, heightened response that matches what this is, because this is not gentle. This is um, a, a violent act of the state inflicted upon um, employees, um, uh, and thus the public, and, and that requires a pushback. Uh, there's not necessarily a right or wrong here, 
but um, it does require um, thinking about ways that we speak up. So this training is one of those ways. There's a flyer that um, is being printed that could be a really interesting way to just produce some conversations around it. The FAQs are there. Um, distributing information is one of the ways. And uh, I think as a group, we're really welcoming learning together and trying different things out because every work situation is also different. Thanks, Marcelo. Um, and just from my perspective, so yeah, um, I think that a really, yeah, I do think that a really good way and I don't, you know, I, I am just reiterating what Amin and Marcelo have said is that the importance of working together as a group and also just identifying colleagues in your workplace who, who you know, might have just made like a kind of sassy comment about prevent um, and just, you know, taking them aside and just speaking to them and saying, yeah, I mean, I just saying, you know, I really also feel uncomfortable with the training that we did. I know of, you know, this group of people who are working on that. Um, and I, I essentially just using the avenues that you have at your, you know, to your hands. So if you're like an active member of your trade union branch, I would just really recommend. And you can actually see um, we created and we've just published today uh, a leaflet on mutual uh, mutual support guide for people who are impacted by prevent and healthcare, whether that's because they are being asked to implement prevent or because they were affected by prevent through a referral. And I, I've written up like quite a big chunk on how to use kind of trade unions as a way of, of challenging prevent. So the initial thing that I wrote, and I don't want to sound like a trade union like like rep or something, I'm not a trade union rep, but um, is just join your trade union before you encounter any issues, it, whether it's with regard to prevent or anything else. And I had just like a very interesting conversation with someone from who works in a trade union who was just saying, you know, if there's prevent being really heavily implemented in the workplace and if workers are being discriminated against in the ways that they are being dealt with by senior management, it's very likely that there's other forms of discrimination happening in that workplace. And, and I hadn't, even though like I know that in theory, I, I just hadn't really put that together. I, um, and so she was just saying, you know, I really recommend that then you start looking at racism within the workplace and as a broader issue and start challenging that and include prevent within that and include the duty within that. Because yeah, unfortunately when things become a legal duty, it's just so difficult to challenge it. And I, I personally wouldn't recommend challenging it necessarily on an individual level if you haven't reached out to others, just because you put yourself at risk and you end up potentially being really disheartened and demotivated by your experience. So like, yeah, I'm just really glad that Marcelo, you know, you came to us and we're able to like work together um, after your experience of trying to challenge it in the workplace. Um, was there anything else that uh, the speakers wanted to respond to in that? 
No. Okay, great. I might just take one more question and then we're going to have to end. Um, there was a question that I thought was important um, to respond to. Let me just find it. Uh, um, sorry. So someone asked anonymously, how do we ensure that young people are not psychologically impacted by the prevent policy? How do we reassure them that their identity is not the issue, but that it's these policies? Um, and yeah, I would just like to maybe like ask um, Tarek and potentially Amin to respond. And also, yeah, I'm very sorry. There were a lot of questions in the chat box, which I love. Um, and it just shows that there is just a lot of thought going into, you know, the impacts of prevent and, um, yeah, I'm sorry that we haven't been able to get to all the questions, but I wonder, yeah, Tarek and then, or Amin, do you want to respond to that? Just quickly, and then we have to wrap up. I, I don't have a quick answer to this. I definitely do have an answer to this. I don't know if Amin has anything uh, he'd like to say. Um, there's a point I think that's very important for me to make about Islamophobia. Uh, and about the othering of Muslims, especially in increasingly nationalist politics, but it's always sort of existed in the history of Western civilization, really, um, which is something that's sort of really well documented historically. Muslims have been otherized. I mean, the experience of Muslims across the global north and the otherizing of Muslims across the global north has has been sort of a longstanding occurrence. If we think about the sort of wider integration debates, which existed even before 9-11, Right. There was already questions across the Western society. Where do, do Muslims belong? Do Muslims fit into, you know, into the sort of into our civilization, uh, liberal democracies, whatever. So what prevent and the war on terror has done, it's not introducing this conflict. It's in a way securitizing longstanding, let's say, integration debates. So, right. You know, before if questions of integration were, you know, if you want to belong to this country, you better act like us, you better believe like us, right? Now it's, if you don't integrate, um, you're a potential radical. So th that's what we mean by securitizing. So when we're talking about how to protect these youth, when we speak with youth and we talk about, we talk with people, you know, a large portion of the Muslim community doesn't know about prevent. But, you know, I've spoken to, let's say a mother who's so worried when her son goes to travel um, you know, the experience that he might have in the airport, because there's what we call, I like a term called affective surveillance. There's this embodied experience of being otherized that's already recognized within the atmosphere, right? And I think when we're trying to say, how do we counter prevent from doing this? Prevent is only legitimizing these prejudices, right? Pre prevent is creating a duty around our worst fears that people might otherize us, people might racialize according to certain signifiers in the war on terror. But other countries, like um, the policy document I just brought out today, you know, Muslims feel otherized in countries where <laughs> there is no prevent duty, right? You take Quebec, you take, you take Denmark, you take any other place. You don't need the prevent duty for it. Prevent is just legitimizing that. And I think that's really one of the issues at hand we don't, it's not only just about abolishing prevent, right? We really do want to abolish prevent, but in a way we have to look past prevent 
you know, and speak to the wider discourses of nationalism, you know, um, et cetera, which um, in, in effect do otherize um, non-white populations in the British imaginary. But um, I can speak a little bit more to that. You know, if we want to protect our youth, I think we need to bring it back to community as Marcelo was talking about, as Reem was talking about, we have to bring it back. You know, the best way to protect your, our youth is to not let them go through these things alone to know that there is a community that sees them and hears them. And you know, there's so many civil um, community groups that are there for them. And really we need to be raising our children to understand that they're part of a community, irrespective of what they're going through. They're not going through it alone and there's people there for them. And I think that's really important. I'm afraid that's it for the Q&A. Um, we will go over by about five minutes. So I hope that people are able to stay an additional five minutes. Um, but thank you all. Thanks so much to our speakers. I really, really appreciate you taking the time out, especially, you know, today is the first sunny, warm day in a, in a while. Um, so thank you so much to the speakers and thanks so much to the attendees as well. I'm really like heartened by the fact that there were so many questions in the chat box. Um, and yeah, it just makes me feel optimistic about like healthcare, the people who are working in health and also for our ability to kind of challenge racism and yeah, just challenge racism in, in healthcare and in society more broadly. And just wanted to invite Jordan, who, as I said before, is one of the Securitization of Health Group members to come in at this point and just say a few words about why you should join our group, if possible. Thanks, Reem. So we do hope that if you did feel uh, compelled by learning what you did today to join a group that you would consider joining ours. Um, we feel very strongly, which has been communicated over and over today, that it is only together that we will be able to make any meaningful change and that prevent will only be repealed um, when there are thousands of people who work in health coming together to collectively call for this meaningful change. And so that is why we would call on you to join us in this work. Um, I found being in this group to be really powerful in terms of sharing ideas and building community around something that everyone feels very passionately about. And that has a huge effect on, you know, the way that you, you feel you can move forward uh, to make meaningful change. Um, so again, if you do feel like you'd like to work toward ending racist policies in the NHS, this is uh, perhaps a really wonderful place for you to uh, build community. Thanks so much, Jordan. Um, so you should be able to see, as I said, the link in the chat box um, that has a document taking you to a list of different links. Um, and yeah, register to that like follow-up event if you're able to. Um, and this includes as well um, a link to join the MEDACT and, um, MEDACT and the Securitization of Health Group mailing lists and a link where you can find um, the securitization of health groups frequently asked questions which formed the basis of this presentation that was given earlier by Jordan and Amin. So that was just published today. So that's a completely new resource and we'll be sharing that also on social media and stuff. Please do also share it with your colleagues. In that FAQs page, 
you can also find a link at the bottom to the short mutual support guide for workers and others facing prevent in the workplace or affected by prevent that I mentioned earlier and I really hope that that will be helpful. Um, if you're unable to make our meeting next week but would be interested to take part in future please do email me on kaya at medapp.org um, and you will be able to you'll have my email address from other um, from other communications I've had with you um, and I will follow up on this event anyway. Um, so, and for those who are interested in staying updated about our work on prevent and other forms of policing and health, you can sign up to the securitization of health mailing list, like I said. Um, and thank you once again for coming today. Please do sign up to the mailing list to keep up to date on future events. And you can also sign up to be a member of Merat by paying as little as one pound a month. Um, and we're only able to do the work that we do through the support and dedication of our members. So I just wanted to say a huge thank you to um, everyone here who came here today and also to the people who've like put in so much work. There's been so many like emails, especially, you know, during the pandemic, the amount of work that we've done um, has been really incredible. And I've, I've really enjoyed working with the Securitization of Health group. Um, so yeah, thanks everyone. Thank you for listening. The next alternative training on preventing healthcare will take place on the 25th of May 2021. If you want to find out about future MedAct events, you can sign up for email updates from us at www.medact.org forward slash emails.